We're in week three of our series that we're calling Foundations, and we're going over some of the just pivotal foundations that we want to build our church upon. What are some of the pivotal values or aims that we want to, that we want, the direction that we want to head in? And a lot of these things, maybe some of them we're going to be better than others, and we're not going to necessarily transform overnight, but our prayer through this series is that not necessarily perfection, but direction. We want to make sure we're always heading in the right direction. We want to examine ourselves if there's any areas of weakness according to what Scripture says. We want to humble ourselves before what the Bible says about the church. And if there's any areas where we need to course correct, we want to acknowledge that and we want to seek to go in that direction. Today we're talking about the Word of God, the Word of God, and this is one of those areas where, like, I was listening to a preacher, like a radio preacher, and, you know, while he's preaching, he, the, during the sermon, there's inspirational music in the background. There's, it's just like, obviously, he, he's trying to preach the Word of God, but there's like an emotional aspect, and it's just like, I like listening to inspirational music, but... Not during a sermon, okay? That's not going to be us. I'm just telling you that right now. We're not trying to first engage the feelings. We're not trying to, in that sense, in some ways, manipulate the emotions. We always want to go through the renewing of the mind that will then penetrate the heart and then lead to change in your hands and your actions. There's going to be a simplicity to our church, um, that's one of our unspoken values. We're not going to try to add a lot of fluff. We don't have a lot of programs or a lot of different elements to our service. A lot of it just centers around the simple and, I hope, clear teaching of the Word of God. We want to eventually, we should eventually get back into book studies. That's going to be always one of our aims as a church because we want to preach the whole counsel of God. Not just what a preacher likes to preach, but when you go through books, you get a balanced diet. You have to talk about texts that are hard to talk about. You have to face difficult truths. And, and it's not always going to be immediately relevant. Sometimes you're going to hear a sermon where it's like, you know, this is not immediately relevant to my situation. And in those cases, oftentimes we could turn off because, frankly, we make it about ourselves. But many sermons, many truths in the Bible don't have much to do with us. They have to do with God and what He's doing throughout history. But if we're going to be biblical, we will always be relevant. It may not be immediately like, this is the exact sermon I needed to hear, but tuck it away, have faith. God will use that, and He will bear fruit. You need all Scripture. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training. There's going to be a simplicity. We want to make sure we're always preaching the whole counsel of God, and that's something God will personally evaluate me and any preacher on. Are we going to preach on only things that we want to hear or things that we need to hear? Will we preach difficult theology? Will we avoid concepts in the Bible that are hard to understand, like predestination? We need to make sure we're always going over the entire truth, and our hearts are open to the entire Word of God. And so today we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 66, and this is the last chapter of the book of Isaiah. And so read with me in chapter 66, verses 1 through 2. Isaiah 66, verses 1 through 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? 
All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And so starting at verse 1, we don't want to skip those first four words. Thus says the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, which is the word Yahweh. This is how God introduced himself back in Exodus 3. He gives us his name in the Hebrew pronunciation as Yahweh, and packed into that name is the covenant-keeping God. It's the covenant God of Israel, the one who chose Israel as a people for his own. He heard their cries when they were in slavery. He came to slave them and free them that they may worship and serve him. He is the one who is faithful to his word, the promise-keeping covenant God. And heaven is his throne, earth is his footstool. Heaven is his throne, emphasizing his kingship, his rulership, his royalty, that he made it all. He is sovereign over all things, his supremacy. It says the earth is his footstool, which to me is like when I read that, I was, you know, that was sort of new to me. I had not really thought about it that way. If you just think about the earth and its complexity and its size and its order and all the vastness and all the diversity, you think about the sky and the ocean. If you ever just stood in awe of creation and it makes you feel so small, so insignificant, tiny in comparison to the glory of the planet that we live on, but that earth is described as the footstool of God. I have like a little cushion underneath my office desk, my footstool. It's just something I rest my foot upon. I don't go around showing people my footstool. It's not a significant piece of furniture. It's not something where it's like, this is impressive. But God says, earth, which is so vast, is his footstool. Isaiah 40.22 says, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. The world that makes us feel so small and insignificant, and yet God makes the world seem so small. All the activity in the world, all the, all the flurry of activity that we go through is like the chirping and jumping of grasshoppers to God. The heavens are like a small dwelling place. The vastness of the heavens is a small tent. And if you think of the vastness of the universe, if you've ever just stared at the stars on a clear night, you see and you have this sense of the greatness and magnitude and the power and supremacy and transcendence of a God who can create something like that. It's beyond our imagination. Isaiah 40, 26 says, Lift up your eyes on heaven and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. It's God who brings out the stars. It's God who first set them in space. He is the maker and the master. They are all subject to his will. Job says that the lightning bolts, the thunder and lightning bolts, they report to God and say, where should I go? And all of this shows us how big God is, and then it also puts us in our place. One of my old favorite childhood comics, you guys, some of, some of you may have read this, Calvin and Hobbes, great theology in there. There's some great theology in there. 
And in one comic, Calvin, if we put it up, it says, if people, and they're staring at the stars, Calvin and Hobbes, his pet tiger, um, if people sat outside and looked at the stars each night, I bet they'd live a lot differently. How so, says Hobbes. Well, when you look into infinity, you realize that there are more important things than what people do all day. And that's always a good reminder for us just how small we are. And God has to take us through certain experiences that help us see that we have a very, very inflated view of ourselves. God is beyond the heavens and the earth. He rules it all, and he is reminding us, don't be so impressed with yourself. We're not the center of the universe, and oftentimes life can overwhelm us that we just forget how big God is. We forget how big God is. And sometimes we need sermons that describe the closeness, the intimacy of God, that God is near to us. He is our friend. He is someone who loves us so much. But I also need other sermons, like my son, randomly. I love it. I love it. I record it. He randomly sings, our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above. And he doesn't know what reigns means. I keep trying to explain it to him, that God is reigning. He's like ruling over us, and he's like, okay. But he just sings, our God is an awesome God. Randomly, he just bursts out in praise. And I need to hear that. I need to hear that. I need to know that God, the Father, is transcendent, and yet he's also my Father. That's one of the beauties of the Trinity, right? God, God if you just say the word God, may feel very transcendent, and he is. And then you have Jesus who came a little bit closer on earth. And then he faced us face to face. And then you have the Holy Spirit who lives within us. God is transcendent and yet he is near. And it used to be like a badge of honor, something that was good to describe someone as a God-fearer. This person fears the Lord to recognize a God's greatness. And what is the fear of the Lord? It's not necessarily just threat. But it's a life rearranging reverence and awe and wonder at who God is. That God, it's a weird word. We use like different words now and they've, they've transformed. But back then when you said like, God is awesome. When I hear someone say awesome now, there's almost like a triviality, a casualness to it. So it doesn't sound as cool to say God is awesome. Because we will say that about anything. Or when we say the word awful, we think that's a bad thing, but you go back to like King James language, it's full of awe. That God is awful. It just sounds weird to us, but it's full of awe. And so oftentimes we approach God with irreverence or casually, and we fail to fear him and to stand in awe. But Isaiah here, going back to Isaiah 66.2, he God asked two rhetorical questions to follow up. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? And both questions assume a negative answer. The answer is so obvious that God doesn't even bother to answer them. What can we do to help him out? Does God need our help? If I'm not here, will it all fall apart? His plan will just go to ruins? Does he need the house that we will build for him? Does it add to his fullness? Does it make him more complete? Does he need it for rest? No. 
Acts 17, verse 24 through 25 says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And Psalm 50, I don't have it here. Psalm 50 talks about if I was hungry, would I go to you? I don't need anything from you. I have everything. I made everything. John 1 talks about how God, nothing has been made apart from him. And God did, just to be clear, to give a clarifier, God did commission the kings to build a house for him. They built a building for him in the Old Testament. If you're not familiar with it, it was called the temple. First, it was like a traveling building, a tabernacle, a tent, and then it turned into a permanent location called the temple. And that was a place where God chose out of his grace to dwell in a special way. And he gave very clear instruction on how that should be completed. But even Solomon, King Solomon, who completed that temple, when he finished it in, in um, uh, Kings, no, 1 Kings 8.27, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot continue. How much less this house that I have built? God did dwell in that temple in a unique way, but Solomon is like, no man, he acknowledges, no man-made temple could ever truly contain the infinite God. Not even the entire universe can contain him. It was more of a symbol, if anything, of his presence, a representation of his presence, but at its best, it wouldn't contain him. And Israel, the Jews, they gloried in their temple. They were so impressed by it. And it's honestly the type of thing that we would be impressed by today. We were impressed by the beauty of certain buildings. I've walked through Vatican City. I walked through Vatican City. I've walked through it. It's amazing. It's a monument to human innovation, what man can do. But the whole time I was there in Vatican City in Rome, there's this weird burden and a sadness within me that all of this religious activity, all of this human innovation, and yet how can we miss it? How can they miss it so badly? That God doesn't care about this. He's not impressed with our amazing buildings. Huge fortunes have been spent to build impressive structures with amazing design and beauty to be a house of God, but God doesn't go to those churches. How many buildings in the Church of England right now are empty? Because God never goes there. And we might think, in the context of Isaiah 66, he's comparing those who tremble before his word and those who just were full of religious activity. We may think we're doing a favor to God by our religious activity. I'm going to build him a building. But he says, all my hands made these things, including the materials that you build the building with. Through me, all these things came into being. I own it all. It's all mine. And the text could end right there. But after saying all these things, he says, but this is the one to whom I will look. This is the one that I will esteem. This is the one who will capture my gaze. Don't we want to know what captures the gaze of Yahweh God? This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. We glory in things made by human hands, but God made the heavens and the earth with his word, and he doesn't look upon the building. He looks 
at the posture of the heart. And it's not just that like he casually looks at it. It's not like God sees all things, doesn't he? Of course, he sees all things. But here, the idea, it's looking with intensity, intently, with a special care and interest. This word, the Hebrew word, look, you see it in different parts of Genesis. In Genesis 15.5, and he brought him outside and said, look, that's the word there, look intently toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, to Abraham, so shall your offspring be. Isaiah 51, the book we're in, says in verse 1 through 2, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were honed and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you, for he was the one, for he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. And God is saying here that, and in the book of Isaiah, he is looking for a place to dwell. He is looking for a place to dwell. He's looking for a place to make his home, looking for a place suitable for him. Where is that place? Isaiah 57 says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. And he's not looking for a big place. He's looking for a very small, very common, a human heart that is broken. That's what captures God's gaze. Not the glory of a building, not a flurry of religious activity. All false religion starts by focusing on activity, on rituals, what we do for God. And doing becomes a center of religion, a false religion But God doesn't care about that. He says, I look at the heart, a certain posture. These are the servants that I want. That God, the God of heaven and earth is looking for. I will look with favor with the one who is humble and broken and trembles at my word. It starts with humility. These are the ones that recognize how small, how dependent they are. And you can never just become humble by just telling yourself to become humble. No, what you really need to become humble is to see the greatness of God. If you see him, fear him, then you see yourself and you're humbled. It's when you see who God is that the inflated view of ourselves is corrected. We saw this earlier in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah describes in Isaiah chapter 6, God is holy, 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 it's holy, seated upon the throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. And you just imagine Isaiah is face down and he looks up and he sees fold after fold after fold of God's robe filling the temple. You see the angels all worshiping him. You see that he is holy, meaning that he possesses every quality in infinite measure. He has it all, no boundaries, no limitations, every perfection, all beauty, all power, all love, all wisdom, he possesses all of that. He's in a different league. He's set apart. He's in a class of his own. And so Isaiah saw that, and he didn't see God as sitting next to him with his legs crossed, just casually talking to him. He sees God high and lifted up. Is that our view of God? High and lifted up, seated on a throne. Is he the God who sits enthroned in heaven? The earth is his footstool. If that's who he is, humility will naturally follow because humility is just having a right view of yourself in light of who God is. 
Humility ultimately is just having a right view of God and then a right view of yourself. It's John the Baptist when he says, like, Jesus describes him as the greatest prophet, like one of the greatest prophets. And John the Baptist, he says, I'm just a voice. I'm just a finger pointing to the light. I'm not worthy to tie his shoelaces. He must increase, but I must decrease. That's humility. There's nothing about it that makes it about self or self-promotion. You cannot be self-promoting when you see the glory of God. You can't be seeking your self-glory. We're all hungry for glory, usually our glory. Humility is the one who recognizes where God was speaking to Moses in uh, in Exodus chapter 3, and he says, you need to take off your sandals. You're in my presence. God says, this is the one to whom I will look, the one who recognizes who they are before me, the humble. Secondly, it's the contrite in spirit. Contrite in spirit. Literally, the word contrite, if you translate it, it means lame or crippled or disabled. This is the person where the same Hebrew word is used to describe Mephibosheth, and this was a man who was disabled or lame in both of his feet. It's the one who recognizes that there is an inability, there's a deep inability in me. It's a brokenness. I'm sick and I need to be healed. I'm unable to function in the way that I want to function. It's a picture of weakness rather than a picture of strength, spiritual inability. And the word spirit, ruah in Hebrew, points to a lifelong brokenness and repentance and constantly knowing that I don't have to go far to find a sinner. I don't have to go far to find a sinner. I just need to look within. When Isaiah saw God in Isaiah 6, he didn't just humble himself. He said, woe is me. I'm done for. He's blasted with the vision of who God is, and he feels completely ruined because he realizes how unclean he is as he gets closer to the light. And the more we understand who God is, the more we will understand our brokenness and how far we fall short. John Calvin says, knowledge of God leads to knowledge of self. As you see God, you're not going to grow in self-esteem. It's not a gospel of self-esteem where it's just like, now I need to think more highly of yourself. You actually forget yourself. When we come to God and say, I can do it, you're missing it. The broken and contrite in spirit is the one who says, I can't do it. I need God. I'm sinful. It's the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. This is part of my salvation testimony. I realize blessed are not the strong. Blessed are not the moral. Blessed are not the ones who do all the things they should be doing. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit, those who recognize their bankruptcy apart from God. Those are the ones that God will bless, honor, Show favor to. God finds his home in a humble heart. God finds his home in a repentant heart. A heart that is humble before him. A heart that is broken over his sin, his or her sin. And lastly, a heart, and this is what I want to focus on today, that trembles before his word. And we could take his word lightly, except we just got a picture of who God is. And if you take God seriously, you will take his word seriously. 
to tremble before his word, there's a fear, there's an awe. We want to know it. I'm afraid to disobey it. I long to follow it. I want to carry it out. I will not dismiss it. I will definitely not alter it. I will not pick and choose what I like and what I don't like. Instead, we will tremble before the words of the living God. We see an example of this. What does this look like? Okay. We see an example of this. This is church goals here. We're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 8, and I'll go very quickly through this. Okay. In Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1, And all the people gathered as one into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. And this section is cool because you sort of see the philosophy of preaching. Here are thousands of people who are, whose eyes are zoomed in on a wooden platform. And on the wooden platform, the focus was on a scroll or a book. And the crowds are not quiet. They're yelling out to Ezra the priest, bring out the book, bring out the book. Nowadays, a lot of people will say, put away the book. But they said, Ezra, we're not here to hear from you. Just bring out the book, tell us what God says, explain it, and we'll be fine with that. Bring out the book. They were a people of the book. That's why we're here. Why are we here gathering for someone to talk for an hour when monologue is so out of, out of date? Why do we gather? Why don't we just go to Starbucks? Why, Non-Christians gather. Why don't we just go watch a show and just talk about how we're doing? What makes this gathering special? It's that we bring out the book. That we gather under the book. And you've heard me say this any ordinary Sunday where we gather under the preaching of God's word with the heart to submit to it is a special Sunday. It starts with the book. That's why we gather. Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 3. And he read from it facing the square from before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of the people, all the people were attended to the book of the law. Verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it all, the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, Yahweh, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord, Yahweh, with their faces to the ground. The people here, they gathered expectantly. They expected for something to happen. They were not passive. They were attentive. They were focused. Their hearts were ready. They weren't distracted. They prepared for this. All eyes were on the book, and they saw it as something they engaged in. It was worship. They lifted up their hands. They stood up. They said, amen, amen, and they worshiped through the preaching of the word. And they lifted up their hands in reverence and then bowed their faces to the ground. Verse 8 through 9, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was a governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God, Yahweh your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And I think about and I mourn over how little I've wept before the Bible. Because of my hardness of heart. The priest reads the Bible. There was a pause. And then in smaller chunks, all the priests and Levites, they went and understood it so that people can get a sense and understand. And from there, it went from their heads to their hearts, and it led to tears as they were convicted by it. They wept. 
And if we're not convicted by the word of God, we need to pray. We need to pray for ourselves, pray for one another, pray for our church, pray hard when you hear, pray when you come in, pray when you're listening, pray when you leave, pray for me as a pastor, pray for the preacher. The people are weeping as they see their brokenness. They are broken and contrite in spirit, but they aren't left there. They aren't left there. Nehemiah and the crew, they tell the people, stop crying. At a certain point, stop crying. And in verse 12, it says, And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. What is the purpose of teaching? The purpose isn't just to convict of sin, but to lead to joy as your relationship with God is healed and mended and restored. Weeping in the night should lead to joy in the morning, and the people departed with joy as they understood what God had said. This is the aim of our church. They were a people of the book. They listened attentively. They responded properly with worship. They, they departed with joy as they remembered God's faithfulness to them. And they trembled and bowed down before his word. Trembling is more than learning. It's a supernatural work. It's a supernatural reading of the word or hearing of the word where we come humbly and the spirit brings the word to life and it leads to repentance and then faith, then obedience and worship and joy. That's the entire process. Compare that to a different time in Israel's history where we see what it looks like not to tremble in 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 8 through 11. And Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, Oh, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan, the secretary, came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hands of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord Yahweh. Then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king, who is Josiah, and when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And what's happening here is that after two really sinful, evil kings, they're now finally getting back on track. They're renovating the temple, which had fallen apart. And one day they're renovating the temple, and oh, shoot, what do we find? The Bible. Oh, yeah, the book of the law. There it is. And had been neglected for years. And King Josiah, he's reading and he's just like, oh, we have not been walking in line with this book. And he was afraid. He tore his clothes in repentance as he read through the book. And the world today doesn't tremble at the word of God. At best, they neglect it. And we know much further, they mock it. They laugh at it. It's foolishness to them. They have superior wisdom, advanced technology. We have substituted human wisdom for the word of God. It's not first place. It's not even respected. It's celebrated when you mock it. That's the pride of society where we don't tremble, we don't we neglect it, we alter it, we stand over it, and we celebrate it when people disagree with it. And even in the church, there are churches and Christians who think Scripture is just one of many different opinions. There's a lot of legitimate opinions. There's a lot of legitimate authorities out there. 
And that's the issue. We see that behind the world's legitimization of sexual morality. It's a rejection of God's authority. And it's strange and a little sad for me, even when I hear Christians, maybe just because of their hurt, who have a more defensive posture towards Scripture than they do the world. They've removed every biblical filter from their brain and their, their minds are sponges for what the world says, but they're cynical to what the word of God says. I'd rather believe in the majority opinion of the world. Shouldn't we filter the world's content through scripture and not the other way around? What is the authority here? The New York Times, the blogs you read, that influencer, we're so saturated in worldly thinking, we swim in it, it's in our worldview, and we don't even realize oftentimes how much we lack a biblical worldview, how influenced we are by the world. Can your God disagree with you? Can your God disagree with you? Can he have t opinions that are different than yours? God has opinions, he's strong opinions. I remember an illustration years ago I heard from one pastor named Tim Keller, and he talks about a movie that came out decades ago called The Stepford Wives. And it's about a group of husbands who live in, I'm talking about this on Mother's Day, of course, who live in Stepford, Connecticut with their beautiful wives, and things aren't perfect because these husbands are so tired of having their wives disagree with them all the time. And so what do they do? They put a little computer chip on their wives so that they can control them, and now their wives can only say, yes, dear, yes, dear. And I heard, actually, this was a remake of the original, which where the husbands actually killed their wives and made new wives, and then, but I guess this is a little more tame, I guess, just put a microchip on them, right? But all they could say now is, yes, dear, we're going to do exactly what you want. They never argue back. They never complain. They never criticize. They only tell their husbands what they want to hear. The husbands got what they want. Wives who never disagree with them. And would any of us call this a real marriage or a real relationship? And you may read the scriptures and come across things you don't like. I don't like what it says about sin. I don't like what God says about sin. I don't like what he says about gender or sexuality or even gender roles. We don't like God disagreeing with us. So what do we do? We create a step for God. He only says yes to your opinions. He agrees with all of your opinions. And for many people, their personal experience is their ultimate authority. I think that's one of the great threats to the church today. When we think our personal experience is elevated above the word of God. And you will either submit your sin and immorality under the authority of scriptures, or you will change scripture and change your view of God. That makes sense. It's one or the other. And if you only believe what the Bible, what you like about the Bible, and you reject what you don't like about the Bible, then it's not the Bible you believe in, it's yourself. And of course, there's going to come texts where you're going to wrestle with it. You may not understand it. It's not going to always come easy to obey. That's not what I'm talking about. There will come times where I come across something like, I want to do this, but God, it's hard. It's hard. My flesh fights against me on this, but help me but obey. That's like a believing doubt. 
That's something I think Jesus is very sympathetic towards. But there's a different unbelieving doubt where like the Pharisees, they come to God not to hear from him. They come to God to test him. They come to God not thinking he has the answers, but let me find a way to get out of this. Reading the Bible is not going to be easy. It's going to tell us what we don't want to hear. Confess. Repent. Give up your selfishness. Pay taxes. Submit. Be pure in your relationships. Don't pity yourself. Forgive that person. Apologize. Tell the truth. Deny yourself. Lay down your life. And there will always be a spirit and flesh battle within the believer where it's either sin is going to be more treasured or you're going to treasure more the submitting of, to the Word of God. Sin happens when we desire, what we desire becomes more important and more valuable in our hearts than submitting to the Word of God. It happens when we think our feelings are the source of truth. Our feelings are not truth. Our feelings don't define truth. God's Word defines truth. That's from John Piper. And in the end, when you disagree... Who will submit? 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's the goal, to have every opposing thought demolished and to have it brought under the lordship of Christ. I want the mind of Christ. I want to have every thought I think captive and submitted to the lordship of Christ. I want to see the world as Christ sees the world, but that's hard. I have flesh in me. I don't want to surrender every part of it. It's not going to be easy. Hebrews 4, 12 through 13 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And it's much easier to go to someone who tells you what you want to hear, what you want to hear instead of what you need to hear. I believe in counseling. I believe in counseling. I go to a counselor. I have a therapist. And I like this therapist not only because he affirms me, but he also tells me what I need to hear. But nowadays, a lot of counselors, again, don't take what I'm seeing out of context, okay? I just affirm counseling, okay? But a lot of counseling, they just tell you what you want to hear. They just affirm, that's it. It's much easier to go to someone who won't judge you, won't evaluate you. That's the tone, that's the spirit of the age. In our non-judgmental society, we don't want to go to the Word of God, which will judge us. That's what the Bible will do. It will judge you. It won't hold back. You want to know what the Bible says? Your biggest problem in your life is you. It will reveal all the idols of the heart. It will force you to take responsibility for yourself in a society that says nothing is your fault. And am I, I am the biggest problem in my life. Am I the only problem in my life? No, but I am the biggest problem. Patrick chose the biggest problem in my life. I need to be most in touch with myself. I'm most grieved by myself. The word of God will cut the hearts of those who tremble before his word. And as you look at it, the word of God will confront you. 
You will, be conv- uh, you will be exposed. Conviction is not painless. And at this point, when my soul is confronted with right or wrong, I can choose surgery which will heal me or I can allow infection to continue to spread within me. He is the wonderful counselor, Isaiah 9 says. Christ is the wonderful counselor. He will tell you what you need to know. His word will do surgery on our souls. It is adequate for that. But it doesn't just bring us down. It revives us. It produces fear in us of God, and then it gives us amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It reveals our deepest sins and inadequacies, our hideousness, our ugliness. Then it gives you the tender promises of forgiveness and love and eternity in heaven. It'll show us his wrath and divine judgment, that we are guilty of death and hell, and it will then create a pathway to run to the grace of God. We're not only exposed, we're covered by the blood of Christ. Have you experienced that? Every week, I'm going to challenge you. Have you really come to faith in Christ? Have you really been convicted of your sin? Have you really put your trust in Him? Has the Word of God exposed you? And you come before it and say, I am responsible And you take ownership of your sin. And then you experience the glory of Christ crucified. Because that's the main message of the Bible, that you need salvation and forgiveness and is only found in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You may come to God with your felt needs. This is what I think I need. But the greatest need is salvation through Christ. Have you been exposed and humbled, broken and contrite, tremble at his word? That's the definition of a Christian. Psalm 19.7 says, The law of the Lord, the law of Yahweh is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. The law of the Lord is not something we should, like, detest. It's something that revives the soul. And even after salvation, we continue to tremble before his words, not out of dread and threat that God is going to punish me, but out of reverence and a desire to obey, out of grateful joy. We have reverence for the truth. We obey the truth. And despite what our culture tells us, real joy is not found in listening to yourself. It's found in listening intently to God. It's the humble, broken, contrite who find freedom and joy and peace. The path, though, is up. I mean, you have to go down to first go go up. Repentance is the pathway to joy. Let's examine ourselves under the authority of Scripture. Do we tremble before His Word? Is it more accurate to say, I'm willing to hear what God has to say, or that I'm desperate to hear and obey Him? Am I just interested in Scripture, or do I also want to meditate and internalize it? Do I want to read it? Do I want to obey it? Do I want to, do I want to worship through it, or do I want to disagree with it? Do I want to store it in my heart to learn it, declare it, trust it, rejoice over it, rest in it? Am I teachable? 
Is my heart good soil for the word of God to be planted and to bear much spiritual fruit? Or am I only teachable under certain circumstances? For example, maybe a, a celebrity pastor or the greatest home run sermon. Then, then I can be blessed. If you need and you can only be blessed by some celebrity pastor or the greatest sermons only, then that's a sign of immaturity because the most mature saints are the most easily blessed. They're so humble, they're so teachable that it doesn't matter who it is. It's not about the preacher. Anyone who comes up, we, we're not trembling before a preacher. We're trembling before the Word of God. And any person that comes up, if they're teaching the Word of God, and even if they're not gifted, they're not articulate, they don't have the gift of prophecy, but if they're able to teach and they're proclaiming the gospel, even if they're not, there's no flair, there's nothing fancy about them, and they come to you in weakness and humility like Paul came to the Corinthians, can you soak in that Word? And tremble before his word. I hope one day, you know, like this is why it's good for us. We're going to have more diversity of preachers. First, because I need to be under the word. I need to hear sermons, right? That's something I want. I hope, you know, it, okay, I could use a break sometimes, okay? I can use a break sometimes, not going to lie. I, I schedule breaks, you know, and then I'm like, okay. But... <laughs> underneath all that is a philosophy of like, we want a diversity of preachers so that it's not over-dependent on one man. We're not here to hear from a man. We're here to hear from God. And a person who trembles at his word doesn't just tremble on Sundays. They don't give lip service to the word of God, but they actually go and read it for themselves. And I'm very thankful, I'm very thankful that I'm hearing about informal gatherings of of individuals, okay, the women, okay, come on, guys, all right, of the women who are wanting to gather, and they're just wanting to read Romans. They just want to read First Peter, whatever it is. The person who trembles will be diligent in their own Bible reading. We'll read it individually and communally, and we can become so dependent on a preacher to spoon-feed us the Word of God, but our soul won't be healthy if the only time you're feeding your soul is on Sunday. And just imagine the picture, right? Like, my job is, it is legitimate. Christ said in, to Peter, feed the flock. How do I feed the flock? Through the Word of God. And so I am called to try to cook you up a sermon, a balanced meal, a balanced diet, and when we're babies, maybe you need to be spoon-fed. But imagine you see your high schooler or even a middle schooler or even a fifth grader and you're, the mom is just like, here you go, here comes the airplane, right? And let me feed you your, your meal for the day. We know there's something off about that. Hopefully one of the examples that one of the things you get from preaching is how that you can go read the Bible for yourself. And you got to learn how to cook. you got to learn how to make meals for yourself. That includes the preacher where, you know, like not becoming over-dependent on a preacher, not becoming over-dependent on just good Christian books. Because in both of those scenarios, you're hearing what God said to someone else, you're hearing an echo, you're not hearing what God has to say to you. Now, Christian books are great. Find an author that feeds your soul. I'm, I'm reading so many Christian books nowadays, but Charles Spurgeon says, visit many books, but live in the Bible. 
live in the Bible. You can read it for yourself. If you're a believer, you have the Spirit of God, you can read it for yourself. Some of us in here came to faith in Christ by reading it for ourselves. Now, of course, are there going to be parts that are complicated? Yeah, even Peter was like, some of Paul's writings are really complicated. Peter said that about one of the other authors. That was complicated. I need someone to help me understand that. There will be gifted teachers and prophets, and God says we should pray for that. Paul says we should pray for that. People that will help you, in particular, understand the Word of God. But you can read it for yourself. In Jeremiah 15, 16, look at how the prophet addressed the words of God. Jeremiah 15, 16, your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Yahweh, God of hosts. We have to learn to feast, not just snack, on the word of God. Individually and communally. So let me give my... You know, I always say it needs to start with glory, but let me give my practical exhortation on how to read the Bible for yourself. I think one of the main, if I could just give one piece of advice or one exhortation, the main problem for many of us in our Bible reading is that we have poor posture. Yes, I'm not talking about my physical posture. I have terrible physical posture, as many of you have commented, okay? I am trying to work on that because it looks, I realize sometimes when I watch myself in videos, like, oh, that's how I look, right? Walk up to a wedding ceremony, I'm just like, right? I know I need to work on that, but you know that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a posture of the heart. I did buy like a neck thing, but I've only used it once because my neck, I have like a, anyways, making it about me, right? It's a posture of the heart. That's basically the application of Isaiah 66 too, isn't it? God won't bless our reading if our posture is poor, if we think we can approach Scripture without Him. We approach it as a natural man would, then we will have natural results, not supernatural results. How often do you read the Bible in the same way a non-Christian would read the Bible? Let me go to Proverbs and get my tip for the day, my emotional pick-me-up for the day, but you're not looking for glory in the face of Jesus Christ. How often do I read my Bible thinking intellectually understanding it is enough? I could do it on my own. How much do I rely on my methods, my intellect, my own efforts? How much faith do I have in myself to read the Bible as it should be read? As I prayed at the beginning, if you're going to read the Bible in the proper way, it takes a miracle. But what would happen if every page that we read, we relied on God's help? And here's my main exhortation. Approach your Bible prayerfully before, during, after, throughout the day as you meditate. Because in some ways, if you approach the Bible without prayer, it can actually be counterproductive. It could just feed your pride, not feed your love for Christ. I'm talking about not just praying. Last week I talked about praying in response to the Scriptures. But I'm talking about praying in anticipation. What if every part of our reading, we apply Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, trust, trust in the Lord with all your heart. 
Trust in Him. Do not lean on your own understanding. Acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. What if every part of our reading, we were trusting in Him, we were acknowledging Him, we were not leaning on our own understanding? The third person of the Trinity, we need the third person of the Trinity to breathe life into us through the words of Scripture. As, again, Charles Spurgeon observed, Texts will often refuse to reveal their treasures till you open them with the key of prayer. When we read like this, by the grace of God, we will read it in a supernatural way, and you will bear fruit, 30, 60, 100 fruit, because our hearts are good soil. When we read supernaturally, we can start expecting supernatural results. We can expect God to come and live in us, to abide in us, to dwell in us. Going back to the book of Isaiah, God says, I want to make my home in people who are humble and broken and trembling at my word. All of us came trembling to the cross. We came trembling and broken and repentant, and we found, repent- we found salvation. And God makes his home in these people. That's the type of church God goes to. He will be present. He will settle down to rest. He will make our church his home. If we live out John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Later in that chapter, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Look at what God promises. For the church who trembles, who is in awe of his word, who lives in submission to his word, who remains and abides in his word, who obeys his commands, we have the promise that the uh, the spirit will dwell in us. The father will be in us. They will make their home in us. They will dwell. They will live here. They will be part of our church. And that is why we will be blessed. I'm going to close by reading Psalm 19, verse 7 through 11. And I'm not going to just read it. I want, I'm going to read it slowly because I want you to pray it. I want you to pray it with me. Maybe our hearts are not there, but pray that you would believe it and pray that you would feel it. Pray that you would believe what the psalmist believed about the word of God and you would feel what the psalmist felt about the word of God. Psalm 19, verse 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Let's pray.
Father, we pray for a Psalm 19 posture before your word. We pray that our hearts would delight in your word. We pray that we would meditate on your word, that we would store it in our hearts, that we would seek it and learn it and declare it and trust in it and rejoice in it. We pray that you would make us a people who love your word so much that we tremble at it. It is so important to us. We pray that we will be men and women who tremble at your word, who open it and read it with reverence and awe and trust and submission and joy. Make us that kind of church. And would you dwell, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would you dwell, would you abide in us as we remain in your word? Help us to love your word, not just to read it, but to love it, to take joy in it. And we thank you for the word that pierced our souls. We thank you that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we want to behold your glory, glory as only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. We want to remember Christ crucified the word that was crucified for us. We thank you for our salvation, and we pray that your word will continue to sustain us as we walk the journey of faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.